0: Welcome to Give and Take, it's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Evan Money. He's a best-selling author, global entrepreneur, and executive producer of the groundbreaking documentary film, Words of Art, starring Joel Osteen, Darren Hardy, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, and many, many more interesting figures. Evident has his bride for 19 years and counting, remarrying in a different state or country every year. He's also the co-founder of the Personal Growth Hall of Fame. He's been seen on ABC, NBC, CBS, the CW, Lifetime, and tons of other places. He's the author of several books, including most recently, Money Talks, Negativity Walks. We had a really interesting conversation. He's a really, really fun guy. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Evan Money. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Scott,
1: I am beyond excited to be here. And my ultimate goal is to see how many times I can get you to laugh because you have the greatest laugh in the, the whole world of
0: podcasting. So we, we've we never met before. But uh, I feel like I know for, you. <laughs> exactly. We've only talked for a few minutes. Is it fair to say most people describe you as a low energy guy? <laughs>
1: Ah, no. That was my one differentiating with everything was I. I couldn't. I don't. I. I don't know what it is. I just would never. Could never conceive living life on this low. Like okay, that just wasn't me. Every life was always exciting, and so I was like, why do I have to tone it down? I don't have to tone it down. This is just who I am. Let's go.
0: So. At what point are you? Do you think that you're going to be like a speaker, an entrepreneur, investor? I mean, like when kids are sitting around, like the playground, like I want to be a cowboy, I want to be a fireman, I want to be an astronaut. Are you like, look, I want to see people tap into their best potentials. I want to sort of conquer the world. I want to, I want to do interesting things and sort of suck the marrow out of the bone of life. Was that you, what you said on career day or what?
1: No. So, here's, here is my thing. So, I, and I uh, am paraphrasing and learned this from Tim Conway Jr., another icon in radio, but like Tim Conway Jr., I have been incarcerated in the Los Angeles public school system for 12 years. So, kindergarten through 12th grade. So, when the, the school bell rings, it was Pavlov and his dog. The bell told me when I was hungry. The bell told me when I can go to the bathroom. The bell told me everything. So in that world, I don't, for me, there was no space for any kind of creativity. I mean, flashing back to 1984 and the mic, not Microsoft, sorry. Oh gosh. Um, but 84 and the whole Macintosh commercial, you know, that was the public school system. It just beat all of the life out of me. And I had enough of a rebellious spirit in me to say, okay, I don't want to do what all these other guys are doing. So all my buddies went to college and I went to Surf Bum University for all those who've ever graduated from there. Surfbum university is just I spent all my time surfing and you know, work was something you did in between surfing. And so did that for four years. And I could never figure out why all the wealthy people had all the mansions that were right by the beach but never surfed. <laughs> I was like, dude, <laughs> you live right here, man. How can you not surf it? And so Yeah, it was a long arc for me to kind of figure things out. But it really just came from this. A lot of people say, oh, you had this entrepreneurial spirit. It was like, no, I had a rebellious spirit. I just couldn't handle somebody telling me what to do. And so I was like, all right, I'll just start my own business. And I realized when I started my own business, it was like, hey, I can answer the phone any way I want to. Hey, I don't have a sales manager telling me, hey, you're too loud. You're too this. You're too that. I was like, man, I could be as wacky and creative as I want to be. And so it was just a journey of, like we talked about off-air, I'm an ADD visionary. So I see something over here. It's like, oh, what's that? Oh, let's do this. Oh, what's that? Let's do that. Oh, let's make movies. Oh, let's do speaking. Oh, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And it's saying, hey, if I can create a revenue stream from it, or I can create something exciting from it, let's go do that. And so it was just, hey, not necessarily, hey, I want to break all the rules, but I just didn't want anyone telling me how I could live my life, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. At what point? I mean... That seems like a high-risk kind of scenario, though. Like, most people start businesses. A lot of businesses start small businesses. Most of them fail, right? Yes. So you are... By the way, I want to tell you something. I forgot to mention this. I'm part of your 5%. Yeah.
1: I was like, "There's no way he's gonna read it that fast," but I'm like, "Well, he reads a lot of books, and it was actually a pretty short book, and it's big print, so all right." I appreciate you mentioning yeah, that. I'm
0: part of your five percent club. So no, but you well, you you say in the book that basically most nonfiction books go unread, and so that yeah, it's a fact. If you read the book, you're like, you know, ninety five percent go unread. So if you actually finish a nonfiction book, you're part of the five percent club.
1: That's right. So, so well, hold on. So all 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 of your billions of listeners out there, there's a lot of people that are listening that are are I, I say. Everyone's got a book in them, Scott. It's just very few people actually write it. And so, there's, a, again, lots of your listeners that are really want to write a book but are hesitant. So, here's the good news. If you write a nonfiction book, 95% of people that buy it aren't even going to read it or get past the first chapter. So, as that, that actually freed me to write my first book. Because so I was like, well, most people aren't going to read it anyway. So... <laughs> It just, I just make wrote. sure
0: there's killer cover art, and you're fine. <laughs> it's good, killer cover art. For a couple for first two pages. Make sure you spell everything right. After that, you're good. But were you worried that you were going to be a statistic? That you were going to be one of the one of the multiple failure failure businesses? And how did you? I mean, how do you deal with the anxiety of doing something kind of? That sounds like it was at least on the front a little amorphous, right? I mean, what was your plan in the beginning? Wow, you're throwing out PhD words. I'm going to have to go look that one up. Um,
1: So for me, I started my first company the same month we got married, which is not a good idea. So I'm in my early 20s, mid-20s, I think it was 25. And it was 100% Scott Pure Ignorance. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue. I to this day, I've never had a business plan. Scott,
0: that's why Larry King said he was successful. Yeah. One of his friends said, "You know why you're going to succeed? You're stupid. <laughs> so you'll ask lots of questions." Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, but I never, I never thought. I again, I'm 25 years old. The, the, my whole mantra is take action, and the world is yours. So I've said, okay, instead of, and I, we'll have flashbacks to some of you people that have watched this. Uh, uh, classic film. I didn't necessarily like the movie, but the scene is, is iconic. It's uh, uh, Eight Mile with Eminem, and he's going off on his buddies. He's like, All you guys ever do is talk. Nobody ever does anything. And so I didn't want to be one of those guys. And so I was like, I'm just going to start this company. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no business plan. I'm just going to take action, and we're going to figure this out as we go. And so I remember, I remember Scott, a incredibly intelligent young man. He was actually in my first documentary and he called me after the film and he's like, Hey man, can I meet with you? I really want, I really want to connect with you. We, we met at the resort by my house and he, you know, this guy graduated from business school, you know, with this, you know, glowing GPA and it's just a smart guy. And he's sitting to me. He's like, I really need your counsel on, on starting a business. What about this and this and this and this and this? And I'm like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I go, I've never even written a business plan. I go, I just went out and started it. And we realized his issue was he knew too much. He had all this, you know, if you don't, again, I was totally ignorant. I had no money. So it was like, well, what if the business fails? Well, who cares? I don't have any money anyway. Uh, I remember when, you'll love this, Scott, we are s- four months into our new company. Our new company. woo Okay, this is pre-internet now, so I'm dating myself. So this is 97 and got our new company. And four months into it, our old boss sues us. And so I got a, you know, the 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 papers get delivered. It's all official. You know, you are getting sued. And we open up the letter and we're getting sued for a million dollars. So a million dollars today. Wow. Yeah, well, a million dollars today isn't a whole lot. But back in 1997, a $1 million dollars was a lot of money. And I, I still remember this, Scott. My buddy and I open up the letter. We see that we were getting sued for a million dollars and we belly laughed for five minutes. It was the funniest thing to us because I'm like, well, if you want my... 20-year-old Isuzu trooper with 200,000 miles on it, take it. I mean, <laughs> we, we had no money. So it was like, what are you going to do? You know, I had nothing to lose. I had zero to lose. So we, we thought it was the funniest thing in the world to get sued for a million dollars. Now, if I'd get a lawsuit for a million dollars, it's a whole different deal. I'd be like, oh, wait, oh, I don't know. But we just thought it was hilarious. And we ended up.
0: And what's the company? What do you guys make? You're making widgets. What are you doing? No, no. Like, so our,
1: our first company was in paintball. So not pinball, which everyone thought I was in, or not ping pong, but we start paintball fields all over the world, and I've been in that industry for 20 years. So that's kind of morphed, you know, into extreme sports and things like that. But we were in the niche paintball industry, and that's where we started. And so we would just
0: help. does it hurt when it, you, I I've never paint been paintballing, but I, does it hurt? Absolutely. When it hits you? That's the whole point. That's why I, may, that, I think that's why I stayed away. <laughs> that's
1: why it's called extreme sports. But I will tell you, uh, they are creating what's called um, lighter impact paintballs, which don't hurt as much. And there are what we have all our field owners do now is it, it's ultimately about the experience. So if you're not into getting hit, you can go run around the field with the Nerf guns and still have a good time. So, you know, the paintball side, if you're not into that, great, but still run around with the Nerf guns, run around with squirt guns, you know, run around with whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's an incentive not to get hit. That's what we say.
0: So, okay. So, you're, so then you, how do you morph from somebody that's setting up paintball fields to someone that is doing consulting, coaching, an entrepreneur? You're speaking, you're helping people realize their dreams, you're making what you say in your book. That you are sitting there watching a documentary and you're like, how hard could this be? I'm going to make word art. <laughs> the documentary. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I'd
1: love to tell more of that story because, uh, but I'll take you back and then we'll talk about my Joel Osteen experience and documentary experience and all that stuff, but.
0: So, I once saw like Joe, Joel Osteen on a, like a years ago, and like there was like an in depth like twenty twenty thing, mm-hmm. and like he was working out, and that guy like was like working out in the bench press with like two forty five on each end, and I thought, man, he looks like a wire- more wiry guy on television.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, no, he, that, yeah, he wears a slimming suit. No, he's and the other people think people don't know about Joel is they took over the Compact Center, which is where the Houston Rockets used to play in that arena. And I've been blessed to be there a few times. But they kept, when they redid it, Joel was smart. They kept the practice courts. So Joel's a baller, man. That guy can play hoops. He will take you down. So you do not mess with Joel on the basketball court. And he is buff. He's in shape. And he can cross you over. And he can hit from three-point land. I mean, that guy is in great shape. So do not mess with Joel. And, yeah, you know, you put the suit on. A lot of guys (laughs) on the pulpit, which we all know, you know, they put the suit on to kind of hide their 40 or 50 pounds overweightness. Joel kind of puts the suit on to kind of hide some of the big muscles, kind of doing the stealth routine. But, yeah, Joel's incredible. He's jacked. Oh, yeah absolutely so, and he's got great so, hair i mean it's like come on man He got give me give me some help help me out here you know he's got got everything going for
0: he him he does have great hair <laughs> although i don't know that i'd go with that like business in the front party in the back but <laughs> I, I'd, I'd update a little bit for, if i was him but but he doesn't want to be too hip if you're a minister you don't to look too hip because then people think you're scamming or something
1: oh, i got you i got you that's why he always a lot of people don't know joel's such a huge crier but if if you ever watch him on tv he always edits it out him crying but if you ever see him live, I mean, he just weeps uh, and it's moving and it's fabulous. And I'm like, dude, why don't you put that on TV? And he's like, no, man, I don't want people to think I'm trying to, you know, oh, crying. as you know, this is the crying preacher asking for money. He's like, I don't want to be that guy. I'm like, dude, it is so beautiful to witness, you know, honest weeping. Uh, it is, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, he's, that's an interesting sidebar for
0: you. So you're, so you, you, you become paintball king of the world and I'm the king of the world at what point do you realize like hey I think I want to work with people I think I want to help people actualize their dreams I think I, I want to go beyond like my kind of my extreme sports And how does that how do you break into and you, and you seem like a pretty well networked guy I mean you, you mentioned hey with Joel Steen your book you mentioned getting to hang out with Malcolm Gladwell I mean you've, you've you know you've got to be at, at X Factor tapings and all these things so you're I mean you're, like, good at, like, seemingly getting your foot in the door of interesting places. I mean, did you just walk in with a paint paintball gun and say, hey, I'm excited I got energy. Malcolm Gladwell, talk to me. Well, Ma- <laughs>
1: Malcolm I'll is shoot, actually, I'll yeah, we, we got to be clarified. Malcolm is my hair mentor, 100% for sure. Um, but I'll I'll tell you a, a fun story, and then we'll go back story and walk it through. So this is similar to my... The, the, the,
0: the, the irony of that, for those of you guys, that you, that you, that you two could not have... <laughs> You're going more the Yul Brenner look. He's got the Einstein look. You're more the Yul Brenner. I, I had an so old, let it be written, so let it be done. I, I had
1: an old vendor who, used, and well, well, I don't think you're old enough for that. You mentioned Yul, so you'll remember. I had an old vendor. My his my nickname was Kojak. Hey, Kojak, what's going on? <laughs> and
0: just... uh, that, yeah, remember Telly Savalas? than he used to do those commercials for of uh, the Players Club.
1: Oh yes,
0: I, I, he's uh, such a badass Telly Savalas. <laughs>
1: Telly, baby, I owe it all to those guys. I mean, that was I'm so thankful, and uh, on a total segue, it's so interesting. A lot of, just, a lot of people don't understand, especially we can we can take the the, the religious slant, but you recall if you were of our skin tone, because I don't, I don't play the color game, but if you were on our skin tone and you had a shaved head you were a skinhead and you were a Nazi. And thanks to, I mean, you know, you had Telly Savalas and you were Brenner and they were like, oh yeah, but those guys are different whatever. But, you know, in the 80s, man, if you had a shaved head, dude, you were a Nazi. And blessedly, Michael Jordan came along and he was the first guy, you know, to shave his head and look cool and like an athlete doing that. And it just trickled down. So, I, I'm so thankful that now I can have a shaved head and not be a Nazi and just be, hey, yeah, this is the, the shaved head guy. So, it's mainstream. It is, thankfully. Thankfully. Because otherwise, I still remember my moment and oh, blessed, or hopefully this won't happen to you, Scott, but I'm in a convenience store grabbing some water. And, you know, in these stores, they have those mirrors up on the top, you know, like the theft mirrors, so they can make sure you're not stealing stuff. And those mirrors give you a great angle. So I was looking in the window, and I could see my reflection on the back of my head. And I could see this bald spot growing back there. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, no. That was the day I shaved my head. I was like, I can't have this. So uh, but with that, let's go back, back. How do we go from, okay entrepreneur to to going through all this stuff? So I'll tell you a fun story about my radio debut. And then we'll go back. We'll conquer father-son issues on the show. How about that for a title, right? So I like that. Yeah. So I'm sitting in my car and at this point, I, I didn't have a home office yet. I had a fancy office because I was a businessman and I was cool. Um, and I just wanted to pay more rent. So I'm driving to my corporate offices and in between my personal growth, uh, CDs and tapes and all that, uh, I was, I I used, I used to, I still do. I still enjoy good sports talk radio. It's hard to find, but there are a few guys that are still good. So I'm listening to sports talk radio and it seemed like every time I turned the radio on, Scott, I got the same guy and his skill level was not, it wasn't that I disagreed with him, right? You know, everyone's like, you know, either, you know, Howard Stern or any of the other hardcore uh, radio pundits, you know, I hate that guy. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, well, you know, what do you don't like about you? You just don't agree with him, but they're still talented. So it wasn't that I, I, I disagreed with him. His just talent level on the radio was just like, dude, I'm falling asleep here, man. Come on, help me out. So I thought to myself, how hard could it be? you know, how hard is it just to talk sports on the radio? So I'm driving in my car from that moment, Scott, from that moment. I'm in Los Angeles now, number one largest radio market in the world. So I've never been to broadcasting school. I have zero experience on the radio. But I'm in my car going, how hard can that be? And less than three weeks, I had my own radio show on Los Angeles on an FM station. And I just... You just
0: walked in and said, hey... Yeah, Any I just, money here.
1: I, I just picked up the phone. I'm like, hi, I'm, I was calling. I'm trying to figure out how to get a radio show. Hi, I'm trying to figure out call how to get a radio show. Hi, you hung up on me. I'm trying to figure out how to get a radio show. Click. <laughs> so I finally found Salem Communications, uh, which is in the faith-based radio world. And I remember sitting in the big office talking to the big cheese, and he's like, Well, why should I give you a radio show? And I was like, Why not? <laughs> he was like, All right. <laughs> so that was the that was that. So Uh, flashing back now i'm i'm an entrepreneur and my bride and i are well known for uh we have a thing where we get remarried in a different state or country every year scott that's our thing and so my bride does it for the weddings and i do it for the honeymoons baby i i do so you do a full-on you do i mean you're not just like you do you invite guests Full full on. so Bridal party? Yeah, you can pull it up right now. We can go to to EvanLovesSusan.com. So there's two S's, EvanLovesSusan.com. You can see all 23 of my weddings. And I don't understand how any red-blooded American or whatever country you're from, male, uh, why you'd only want to settle for one honeymoon. It's like, why would you not want to repeat that process multiple times over? So it was like, how can we get some more of this honeymoon
0: action going? So we just, so let me, if you and I, if you and I like hit it off, right? Let's say, you know, you and I, but yeah, it feels okay. Could I be in the bridal party? I mean, what is, is it the same bridal party? Do you like, you lose type people, you get a little less close with new friends, old friends? Oh, hey, no, no, you? no.
1: Check it out, Scott. Check this out. This is what I've, I've learned now, which is the, is the best part. So now, whenever possible, I have my friends marry me and I have them write the vows. And what it does is it gives the ultimate connection. So I remember my the first friend I asked to do this. He sent me this great email. I was like, Ev, I have to tell you. You know, writing your vows for you has really made me convicted on what a better husband I need to be and how I need to take care of my wife. And oh my gosh, thank you so much. And then when he married us, whenever we see each other, it's like, dude, I married you. You know, there's this connection. And so, whenever possible, I have friends now do the do the the vows. I'm
0: an ordain, I'm an ordained minister. I do a hell of a wedding, Woo-hoo! A hell of a wedding. So keep me keep me in the queue.
1: No problem, no problem. So I'll, I'll tell you one that's fun. So I had a friend of mine, and he used to coach for the Green Bay Packers. So I'm a, I'm a huge football guy. So we got married at Lambeau Field, and he did the whole thing for us. We got married at the at the stadium. And he dressed up and he wore his coach's outfit, wore his whistle and his timer. And he did this amazing – you love this guy. did these amazing vows about love and
0: togetherness.
1: And they were all these Vince Lombardi quotes. It was so
0: I awesome. picture him like, look, it's not all going to be easy. It's going to be fourth and three. <laughs> and sometimes you got to go for it.
1: <laughs> no, it was glorious. It was glorious. So to give you an example, wedding parties and all that. So I don't know anybody in Green Bay, Wisconsin – But my buddy's like, hey, got all his friends from church. Say, hey, come on out. It's going to be a good time. And then we put it out on our email list. And we had friends be like, oh, I have my, you know, my sisters, you know, her husband, they live in, you know, where whatever, Wisconsin. They want to come. We're like, yeah, come on down. So sometimes they're big affairs. Other times it's just my bride and I in a little empty country church. Uh, It just depends wherever we are in the world and where we're going. So uh, we have a lot, a lot of fun. So it's all about the fun. Because, you know, as a pastor, the the first, you know, most people, their wedding is, like, oh, it's got to be perfect. Everybody's nervous. Everybody's upset. There's all this tension. It's like, man, once you get past that, it's just fun. So we just have a blast. So that was our thing. So we're the, the cons, consummate newlyweds. And people would come up to us at church and be like, man, I, I, I notice, you know, I, I see you and Susan always touching each other. And you guys are kissing and hugging. And I'm like, well, that's just me mainly. But. Um, she's like, wow, you guys are, you know, and you've been married, how long you're still doing that? So we started getting asked to speak about marriage. And we started doing marriage seminars and started speaking. And I realized I had a a, a huge love for speaking. And uh, I used to really enjoy, you know, my, my big turn in my life came from a Zig Ziglar tape and an old Jim Rohn tape, cassette tapes, right? Dating myself. So the, the icons of personal growth. And I was like, wow, that'd be so cool to be a personal growth guy. And so We started, again, doing these marriage seminars and, you know, one speaking engagement turned to another, turned to another, turned to another. And so that's kind of how the whole speaking thing came to pass. And then I'm sitting on my couch, very similar to like I was in my car listening to sports talk radio. And I'm watching a documentary, which I was really into. I mean, I was like frisking the Netflix mailman. Which I still can't figure out why Netflix just, I mean, I understand from the, you know, the, the power struggle in streaming. But I'm like, can we just stream everything and forget these discs? But anyway, frisking the mailman for my, you know, disc, watching this documentary. And I'm watching it and I'm like, this can't be that hard. You're just running around interviewing, you know, just talking to people. How hard can this be? So, Do you remember what documentary that was? I, I do. It was actually, uh, it was called The Art of Rap. And it was iced tea. And all Ice T did was go around the world and interview all his friends uh, that were rappers. And I was just like, I could do that. Uh, and I'm like, well, who do I want to interview? You know, I'm like, I love the icons of personal growth. So I was like, man, I got to, I, I want to get Joel Steen in my film. So I didn't know Joel. I didn't have any connections to Joel. So I was like, what do I do? Uh, let's see. Write a business plan? No, let's take action. So I called 1 800 Joel. I I literally call 1-800-JOEL. Hi, I want to talk to Joel Osteen and uh, see if he can be in my movie. Click, call back. Hi, I want to talk to Joel Osteen. (laughs) And so I had to talk to the gatekeepers, 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 gatekeeper. But after continually asking and calling and asking and calling, I finally got to Joel and they said, yeah, come on down. We'd love to do it. And so that's how we got Joel in it. And then I was able to get uh, so uh, Dennis Waitley, who was like the second personal growth tape I ever listened to and got to go interview Dennis. And after the interview, he signed my cassette tape, Scott. It was the coolest moment ever. Uh, and I remember talking to Zig Ziglar's people. Actually, Zig, the Ziglar franchise were the first people to say yes to be in the film because everyone's question was, you know, Oh, I'm making this documentary. Oh, great. What other movies have you made? And I'm like, uh, hmm, how are we going to get <laughs> So Ziggler's people were the first people to say yes. And unfortunately, Zig died two weeks before we were supposed to do the interview. And so I was like- He
0: was like like the icon of the movement.
1: Oh, he was. He He was was it. And for me, I'm all about faith-based personal growth. That's my thing. Faith-based personal growth. And Zig was it. Because he wouldn't preach, but he would teach. And he put in these biblical principles, and you were just like, Yeah, man, yeah. So he's talking about success. He's talking about love. He'd always talk about the redhead, you know, his bride, you know, the redhead. And just Zig was in. I really resonated with Zig. And they said yes to doing the interview. They're like, you know, Zig's not in the best health, so he may or may not do it, but his son Tom. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I just want to come down and meet you guys. And but anyway, Zig passed away like two weeks beforehand. So I was like, there goes my interview. You know, that's all my empathy there, right? Did you use that voice? Oh yeah,
0: just like that. Exactly. So I called So you have like two like speeds like fast and stop. You just kind of like go in slow motion.
1: <laughs> so I I called I called to cancel myself. I was like, well, obviously I don't want to do this now. So I called down and they're like, "No, no, no, still come. We still want you to come." So it was such a great interview because Tom, his son, I remember asking him before, I'm like, hey, can I ask about your dad? He's like, well, yeah. if you don't mind me crying, I was like, oh, this would be awesome. So we had just had this amazing, amazing interview. Um, and then the, the magic part of all that, the, the benefit of taking action, right? So I'm in my mid-20s listening to this cassette tape. Little did I know 20 years later, I'd be doing a movie about this guy. And so as it happened, for all you Zig Ziglar fans, we did a premiere in Dallas, And so, Tom Ziegler was there, and he brought the redhead. He brought his mom, which was Zig's wife. And they came in late, and they actually sat in front of me and didn't know it. So, they're sitting directly in front of me. And I would obviously seen the movie before. So, I'm watching them watch the movie. And it was this surreal moment in time, watching this whole Zig Ziegler segment. And I'm watching them watch it. It was the coolest thing ever. And blessedly, they loved it. So, I got pictures with the redhead and a hug and all that. So... It was spectacular, all because I took action, got off my couch, and said, you know, how hard can this be?
0: Now, if you look at, like, the most trusted professions in America, like, nurses are at the top. Like, 29% of the population thinks very highly of them, 50% think highly of them. And and
1: 80% of all statistics are made up. So, yeah, go ahead.
0: Medical, well, (laughs) this is is from Gallup. So, (laughs) I like Gallup. Medical doctors are pretty high. Third. Engineers. Dentists are fifth. Although, dentists have very high suicide rates because- People fear them, but police, college teacher, clergy are surprisingly high. That, that surprised me. Uh, I, I think of like the personal growth industry is not high for a lot of people. I think like because is, is do you feel like there's a stigma around it? Like it's almost like the it's like um, for some reason people like with salespeople, especially in certain industries, right? Like if you say you're in pharmaceutical sales, people don't have as big a stigma. If you say you're in car sales, yeah. Oh my god, oh, yeah. you know like. Yep. Do you, do you is there a stigma or a a perception or misperception that people have for the personal growth industry and how like how do you engage that?
1: Oh, there absolutely is, and rightly so. And that that's what keeps me up at night, Scott. Is the people that are the charlatans and the people that are quote unquote you know doing it just for the money or, you know, using, you know, I can see it all the time. It it makes me ill, you know, the NLP guys and, you know, just the whole, you know, you can call them scammers, you can call them snake oil salesmen, whatever. But all those guys out there drive me to say, hey, when you hear a Zig Ziglar, when you hear a Jim Rohn, when you hear a Tony Robbins, you know, when you hear the legit stuff, it's, a, it's the same with, with pastors and church. You know, there's a lot of people like, oh,
0: yeah, those church
1: guys, you know, they just want your money and da 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 But when they hear the truth and they hear the love and they're just like, whoa, this is real, it's, it's kind of the same thing. So my, you know, target really is the faith-based entrepreneur uh, who enjoys personal growth and helping them dial it more into their faith and, and really making their faith real Rather than, oh yeah, trying to save the masses and all that stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of people. I, I talked to a guy, I had lunch with a guy. I came to one of my events, arms crossed, you know, folded, judging me, you know, who is this guy? I don't like his gold shoes and what's he all about and da da. da, da. But once they see your heart and they go, Oh, okay, this is this guy's for real. So I, I love watching people have those for real moments. Um but it is always a blessing when, you know, people come in with an open mind in the, in the front side or they've read some of your books or whatever and they go, oh, okay, I, I've already trusted you and they're more open. But, um, you know, it's, it's part of uh, – that's the dualities of life. I had a great conversation with an artist uh, yesterday. We talked about – you know, since the fall, right, Adam and Eve, everything's a two-edged sword, you know, and everyone, a lot of times society, they try to make it a one-edged sword. You know, it can only be this way. It's like, no, it's always a two-edged sword. And Jesus always had these great discussions, you know, everyone's trying to put him in a corner and do this, and what about that? And Jesus is like, nope, you know, there's two edges on both sides. So I think having the skeptical person the arms folded almost makes it that much more uh, rewarding, when they're able to kind of say hey wow this guy is for real and they're able to reciprocate the love that you're pouring from stage and and they get it and those are magic moments for sure
0: i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy reflection and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do. Keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout-out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winter Navabico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, and Josh Retterer. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening and now back to the show. Is your given name Money? You didn't cha- did you change your name to Money or did you born Evan Money?
1: So I was the the, the three running jokes are. My original last name was Cash and everybody called me Johnny. So then I changed it to Money and everybody called me Eddie. You know, that one gets a lot of laughs. Um, I always share with people that, you know, my bride was unashamed to marry Money, which is a big thing in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, so, uh, and then the other one for my kids, and this is beyond true. So the first five years of our marriage, my bride and I agreed that we wouldn't have children. So I joke with all the lawyers and say, yeah, we had a no-compete clause because we agreed you know, not to have kids for the first five years because we just wanted to to know each other and, get to, and really connect. So I thought the most appropriate name, Scott, would be Cash for a son and Penny for a daughter. And it wasn't just like a two-second joke, ha I mean, for five years, I'm lobbying. We got to name our son Cash and our daughter Penny. Come on, come on, come on. So we ended up with a Joshua and Ashley. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so whenever we're at the park, wherever outside... Because you, you, there's some kids that are named Cash now. It's coming around. So I'll hear like, Cash, come here. I'm like, see, we could have named our son Cash. But I was not born into money. Uh, so I have a. I was born in a normal dysfunctional family, Scott, that would require probably a week's worth of shows of Dr. Phil and Jerry Springer. Just crazy dysfunction on both sides. I mean, like wacky, crazy, wacky stuff. So I'll, I'll give you. The- wait,
0: wait, 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 what's the wackiness look like? I and mean, what was the? No, it's just dark.
1: It's just really dark and dysfunctional. So I'll give you. Um, I'll give you a background. And I'll tell you a fun story. So I, on my, my father's side, I he's Polish, so we have Polish from his side. So when he came over, they. They changed the name because they were trying to fit in and be American. So I didn't even get like a real Polish last name. I didn't get a ski or whatever that. So they they chopped the name off. Um, and then my mom was a product of infidelity. So we'll go dark here. So my mom was born into a Filipino house. So the husband and wife, you know, dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes, uh, brother and sister, you know, Filipino, dark, dark, dark. So, my mom is born and she has red hair and snow white pale skin and blue eyes. Okay? You with me? Red hair, blue eyes, pale white skin. So, she was literally the redheaded stepchild. And when- No one
0: says recessive genes.
1: (laughs) So, when when my grandmother went into the hospital to give birth to her, she left her at the hospital and said, I don't want her because she was a product of infidelity. She was not happy at home, da, da, da. My grandfather, whose child it was not, keep in mind they're married, but it wasn't his child, goes to the hospital and says, No, I'll raise her as my own. And so my mm. mom grew up on a home where her mom hated her, her brothers and sisters hated her. And so there are massive physical and mental abuse. It was just bad. You know, and you see him again walking down the street. It's like, what's up with that? Right? You know, the redhead stepchild. So my mom escapes all that. And she ended up passing away the second year we were married. So she never got to meet the grandkids or do any of this stuff. So there was this just really uh, sad kind of like, wow, my mom never really got to to enjoy that part of life. So when we adopted our baby girl, and there's a whole long story with that, but we adopted our baby girl and we originally were going to go to Russia. We ended up going here. Uh the short, long story is we are at the airport, leaving, the phone rings, I'm about to get strip searched. And I answer the phone because I thought it was somebody else. And it's the adoption agency saying, I thought they originally were giving us like a match, you know, hey, we found this, you know, pregnant teenager, she wants to give you your kid, you know, that whole thing where you get to know him for the first couple months. That's what I thought it was. And, they're, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we come back, we'll meet her. They're like, no, the baby's here now. You have to come to the hospital now or they're going to give the baby to somebody else. I'm like, "What?" So we're like, "Baby, baby." Ah. So the first person to find out about our our baby was the United uh, baggage handler. <laughs> He's like, "Why do you want your luggage again?" We're like, "We're having a baby." Baby. So, we ended up planning to go to Russia. God's like, "No, I've got something better." And he sends us 45 minutes down the street to Orange County, and we pull up to see our daughter for the first time, Scott, and she's 1 day old, and she has red hair, blue eyes, and pale white skin. And that was a incredible magic moment there of just, Oh, this is so amazing. So all of that to say was when I was about 10 years old, I talked to my mom and I'm asking her why she has a different last name than we do. And, you know, trying to, you know, process the divorce and all this stuff. And we're like, well, I want to change my name to your last name. And my mom's like, no you don't want to do that. <laughs> and so she was pretty, she's like, here's the thing. She goes, when you get older and you're a little more wiser, she goes, you can change your name to whatever you want, but you know, you're 10. She's like, just, you, you don't have to do anything right now. So we're like, really, we could change our name to anything we want. And she's like, Yeah. And so my brother and I run off on these tangents, right? So I want to change my name, my last name to Bond because James Bond was it, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be <laughs> Evan Bond. I mean, dude, I had the whole thing going. And me and my brother were coming up all these cool names. And I think it scared my mom. So that's why she was like, just wait. You don't have to do anything now. Just wait. Just wait. Because she didn't want us to change it to her last name because of all that dysfunction. Uh My dad's side, anybody that's grown up Polish understands there's this whole secrecy thing and – you know, my dad was born in the 20s, uh, but there was just this whole like I've he's I don't know anything about my 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 side, my dad's side of the family. It's all locked away. Deep, dark secrets. You know, it's craziness. So there's no legacy whatsoever. There's nothing. So I ended up changing the name. <laughs> so, so, so I'm in my late teens, early 20s. And the nickname i somehow got the nickname. Money. Everyone's like, yeah, e money, yo, e money, e money. And this was a big deal back then. You know, your, your younger listeners, they don't, the millennials don't understand, but the guys on our age, we get it. So the first step was I got a gold card. Remember when a gold credit card was a big thing? So, oh yeah, now everybody's got Oh, gold did you, do you remember the status was like, oh, dude, he's got a gold card. So I'm early 20s and I, I the, the the correct vocabulary is I exaggerated on the credit card form. <laughs> And uh, exaggerated on my net worth. So I got a gold card with the name e money on it. And I would flash that at the gym. And oh, man, I was, dude, everyone was like, no. I mean, you go out, you go anywhere. Dude, show them the credit card. (laughs) Whip out this credit card with e money on it. People go, ah. So I was like, hey, that name's easy to pronounce. It's easy to spell, you know? Everyone gets it. I'm like, "Hey, let's make it that." So, I have I have been money longer than I've been anything else, but that was kind of the catalyst of saying, "Hey, you know what? We're going to start a new family tree of Function." So, it's like, "Hey, my kids are going to know a mom and a dad that love each other, they're going to stay together, and this is this last name is going to be Function." So we're not going to run away from our our past. We're going to say, hey, that's what it was, but we're going to plant a new family tree, a function, and say, hey, all this dysfunction got us here, but we're going to start fresh and say, this name, this legacy is about love. It's about function. It's about forgiveness. And so I I could go on for hours about the whole thing, but that's the short and long of the last name for you, Scott.
0: Love, healing, forgiveness, the shorthand for that. It's money. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So you say. I think it's in the second chapter. This you're reading a book by this by the CEO of the founder of Cliff Bar, and he has this revelation that he just doesn't have all the answers anymore. And then you say Tony Robbins, I think, says that um, the better questions you ask, the better life you're going to have. And you you go on to say that this is you know like beginning to ask questions is what you think is part of the key to success. Like why aren't you living your dream? Uh or why am I not doing this? Or um what's the one thing I could do to bring me closer to realizing what I want? What what are some questions you've learned? Are there any new questions you've learned recently, or what's or what's the best question someone has asked you recently that stopped you in your tracks and, and made you think about what you're doing, why you're doing it and that kind of thing?
1: Mm, good question. I'll I'll give you a few. So number one is this is what I encourage all clients, people I talk to. You have a magic mirror in your bathroom, so you can take a dry erase pen because it's better than taping something on there or post it because they get all soggy and nasty, but take a dry erase pen and write this on your mirror right what's the one thing I can do today to bring me closer to my dream and your body responds to questions we are programmed God made this some you know gave us this amazing amazing body and this amazing mind, but he's you know, we we have certain, you know, things that are designed to do. You know, we avoid pain and we seek pleasure. You know, we're, you know, different things are just reactiveness. Uh, so you are respond to questions. You know, if whoever is asking questions is in control. So, you know, go back to the cheesy car salesman, right? They know this, they're always peppering you with questions. And, you know, you look at uh, whether it's sports, TV, whatever, the interviewer, if they keep asking these questions, people finally break down and answer them, right? uh so or the courtroom dramas right you just keep asking the question so what's the one thing i can do today to bring me closer did to you dreams? order the code red exactly exactly right <laughs> you, you can't know? handle the truth exactly exactly that means perfect because he wants to answer the question right so uh but yeah classic scene of course classic so uh but by asking yourself that question that's an empowering question versus the questions most of us ask ourselves scott like Why did I do that? Or why am I so fat? Or, you know, why do my relationships never work out? You know, whatever you ask, you're going to get an answer for. So you might as well ask empowering questions, you know, go and going back to the ultimate leader in personal growth. You ready? The ultimate leader in personal growth, Scott, is the Apostle Paul. You know, he invented PMA. The Apostle Paul invented positive mental attitude. You know, whatever is good, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, think on those things. Okay, I mean, that's where it all stemmed from. So it's asking yourself better questions. So it's not what 100 things can I do today? What 50 things? It's what's one thing I can do today? So if you're focused on answering that question, you get to your dreams a lot faster than why does things never work out for me? Uh, notice the tonality, right? Um, yeah, exactly. That was the other voice. Yes, that's the other voice. So you got to ask empowering questions. So the other one, just a one-word thing that I've learned recently to, to get to your question directly. So the, the the best question to always ask is how? And there's a great podcaster, guys. He's called the Misfit Entrepreneur, which is, I think, what most entrepreneurs are. We can relate with that. But it's the how question. It's not why did this happen? It's how. Hey, how can I make this work? You know, How can I get around this? I, I shared a story recently on Facebook. Where there was these two lords, Scott, you know, the classic, you know, when you used to challenge another lord. A lot of people don't know Alexander Hamilton. He died in a duel, you know, the dueling pistols, you know, when, you know, when Aaron Burr. Yeah. When (laughs) when you guys are in that, in that, in that realm, it's like you can't, you have a disagreement, you can't solve it. What do we do? Well, let's shoot each other. (laughs) I challenge you to a duel. So these two lords get challenged to a duel. But the issue is, Scott, they're both like expert marksmen. So they knew it would kind of be like the Twilight Zone where they would both end up killing each other. So they're like, ah, we don't want to do that. So they went to their gentleman's club and they figured it out. Okay, we'll just draw straws. Whoever draws the short straw is going to have to take the pistol, go into the library and shoot himself. It's fair enough. So the two lords, you know, everyone's there and they got their best, you know, their, their helpers. I'm surprised
0: and- that no one's ever written a folk song about that.
1: Oh, this is this classic. <laughs> so, so well, we'll leave it to one of the country guys, right? So uh, he draws the short straw. He's like, all right, I'm going to man up. He grabs the pistol, walks in the library, and a shot rings out. So all the gentlemen's club runs in the library, and they see the guy standing there with a smoking gun, and he's fine. And he goes, guys, I can't believe it. I missed. <laughs> and so, that's the power of asking a how question, not why did I draw the short straw, but how can I make this work? So when you ask yourself a how question, your mind goes to, hey, how can I get at how can I make this work? I know. I'll shoot the window instead of shooting myself. So that's the again, talk about questions, it's the how. That is that is the how. So those are the two ones to really dial in on asking yourself better questions. So instead of why does my marriage suck so bad, you could ask yourself how can I make my marriage better, you know? So it's just one word can change everything.
0: Yeah, you also say that that it's sometimes it's easier to make headway on crazy, impossible dreams because no one's pursuing them. (laughs) Like, like everybody's got the dream of just getting a little, a little bit ahead of doing a little better of making their life a little better. But like the big hairy audacious goals and dreams are, are, you know, these are sometimes sometimes they're there for the taking like, is that pie in the sky optimism or why do you, you, you really think this? You, you think more people should actually dial in on bigger dreams?
1: Well, absolutely. And you're giving me lots of credit, but that's a, that was a Google quote. One of the, I think it was Larry Page who said that. It was like, there's no competition for the crazy goals. You know, everybody's after the small dollar. Everybody's after the small thing. Everybody's after, oh yeah, I just want to do this, but the giant goals nobody's doing. So you have no competition. It's like, what a deal. But, Going back to your hey, well, is this optimism? This whatever. I mean, think it. Look again. We'll, we'll play the name game, right? The three most popular. So let's start with Uber. You know, th- whatever you think of the founder or whatever who just got canned, but he's standing on a corner in New York. Less th- this was what five six years ago, Scott. This isn't like back in the day. This is recent. Um, you know, is looking at his phone, going, "Why can't I push an app on my phone and get a car here?" You know, how many people have had that? Idea, but he took action on it, and all of a sudden we got a you know a seventy billion dollar company called Uber. You know, and was that pie in the sky? I don't know. And then you look at the Airbnb kid, kid, right? You know, you read fast. You want to get depressed really fast? Read Fast Company magazine. I mean, everybody's twenty one and scaling a billion dollar company. It's like, oh come on, you know what's wrong with me? Uh, for all the entrepreneurs out there, but you look at the kid who started Airbnb. He was like, yeah, I want people to you know rent out their spare rooms. It'd be great. <laughs> it's like what? You know, uh, multi-billion dollars later, his company is worth more than Hilton Hotels and he doesn't own any hotels. I mean, there's a story of these companies, stuff like this happens every week. I mean, you look at uh, Elon Musk is popular now, right? I mean, think about it. He looked at NASA and said, why should they build all the rockets? Why can't I build rockets? Uh, well, Elon, how many rockets have you built in the past? None. <laughs> I can figure it out. I'll hire the right guys. And lo and behold, you know, not too far from my house. I mean, we're in LA, so you know it's 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 minutes, not miles. So uh, short mileage, long minutes. But uh, you know, he's got his whole factory right there. He's building rockets when NASA had the the wrap on it forever, and he just came along and said, "Why can't I build rockets? Why can't I build a cool electric car?" You know, how long have people been been hungering for electric cars? He's like, "Yeah, I'll just go ahead and do that." So, pie in the sky, positive, whatever. No, it's. The big stuff people just ignore, so there's so much big opportunity out there. Uh, I remember, I just watched it recently, I'm a huge NFL guy, and that's from not having a father figure and and searching for it somewhere. So um, I remember hearing Jerry Jones's acceptance speech, and he's like, you know, he was my age when he bought the Dallas Cowboys. And I was like, wait a minute. If he can buy the Dallas Cowboys, why can't I buy a professional sports team? It was such an eye-opener. It was like – and it, it wasn't he just you know wrote a check for it. Obviously, he had investors and all that. But it was a wake-up call to me. It was like, well, why can't I buy a sports team? I mean, Jerry Jones did it. It was like, goodness gracious. So, yeah, I think the the big dreams are are much – I'm not going to say they're simpler to get because no one's going after them. So I, I think it's, it's not just a whole PMA. Like I said, there's no – it's not pie in the sky. It, it's for real.
0: You have this interesting quote from Tony Robbins, and it's in a chapter called "Enemy Lines." And you say that if if it's in your head, it's behind enemy lines.
1: That is true. Actually, that's Mel Robbins who I who or Mel Robbins. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Mar-
0: Mar- 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 Mel Robbins. But yeah. Tony
1: will take the credit. He's you know he-, he came up with all the other good quotes. So
0: <laughs> Tony Robbins is so tall. Uh, I don't know how tall Mel Robbins is, but that that's interesting. It's, you think one of the biggest things people do to kind of sabotage their own success. Is they just don't get things out like that? The, you actually say that you have a waterproof uh, uh notepad right in your shower because if you come an idea comes to you in the shower you'll write it down because you're afraid if you dry off whatever the phone rings whatever all of a sudden the idea is gone.
1: Well, I, I tell people this all the time. You, Scott, you have one. Your co-hosts have one. All of your listeners possess a. I'll call it a twenty million dollar shower now. In their house right now is a shower valued at $20 million, at least. And your listeners go, man, what are you talking about? I just got mildew and old soap in my shower.
0: No, you've got $20 million plus. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're assuming that I have a bunch of unhygienic listeners that don't keep their asses <laughs> so in
1: So you've got $20 million worth of ideas still sitting in your shower. And... You know, how many people have watched Shark Tank and put their palm of their hand on their forehead going, man, I thought of that. You know, I wanted to do that five years ago. Well, it's still sitting in your shower and this person's on Shark Tank making it happen. So we all have these great ideas in the shower or a lot of times people get these amazing, you know, the classic, right, is is God, I want to hear your voice. And it's like, well, God's talking. You're just not listening. And one place a lot of people actually listen is in the shower because the distractions are eliminated. You know, most people don't bring their phones in the shower with them. So with the showers, you actually got hot water to relax you. And you're actually in a state where you're not, you know, it's like you can actually relax and receive something. So the shower is the best place for ideas. So I bought, you know, a $15 waterproof diving tablet so I could scribble down an idea and take it out of the shower with me. So I literally got the title for words of art in the shower, Scott, my, my documentary with Joel Olstein. I still have the piece of paper. Remember in the shower, words of art. I was like, I receive it. So I wrote it down, words of art. And the shower title became the title of the film. So absolutely, you know, you have to get it out of your head because the second you don't, you talk yourself out of it. I mean, how many great ideas have you talked yourself out of? Um, I mean, we all have them. So it's like, hey, you got to When Mel said that quote, I was like, oh, she is so right on. Um, and that's not Tony Robbins' wife. It's, it's someone else. And she's a speaker, author and all that stuff. But you got to get it out of your head. Because you're either going to talk yourself out of it, dismiss it, or just, like I said, leave it in your pristine, clean shower like Scott and just let it sit there. So, again, you got to get out of your head and take action
0: on it or it's not going to happen. What's the last idea you wrote down in the shower notebook? Ooh, last idea. I think it was
1: a quote and a story for one of my talks. So my bride and I have been, we haven't signed on the dotted line, but it's a verbal agreement. And so we're going to be doing a TEDx talk about our marriages. And so I got a great story and a great idea on comparing different types of marriages. And I don't want to give it away because I wanted to be on the TED talk. But I took that idea out of the shower and got it on paper to to tell a story. So uh, that was the last great one.
0: Lewis Smedes is a psychologist. He was, he he taught at Fuller Seminary. Actually, he said, "Remember him saying, you know, he he's been married several times in his life to the same woman, and part of he thinks the success to marriage is learning to reinvent your marriage as you're reinvented as different people because people change and develop, and and your life together changes and develops, and so being able to, you know, I mean, oftentimes our response to change in anxiety can be like fight or flight, but being present to the change, accepting it." And is that some of the key I mean, is 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 getting married every year help you do that, help you realize like that there's an openness to the evolution of both of who you are.
1: Oh, I mean, man, you you're waxing poetically, Scott. This is great. Great. I don't again, I don't have the vernacular to keep up, so I'll I'll put it this way. And I got this from he was able to I'll I'll paraphrase it so the and I'll tell a funny story. So this is Evans ADD long way around the block to make a point. So, uh, John Maxwell taught me this one. He said, You know, when you quote someone, the first time you say, Yeah, you know, Scott Kent Jones says this. And the second time you, you quote him, you go, I've heard it said. And then the third time you quote it, you say, Like I always say. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I will steal this one from Michael Beckwith. Like I always say, Scott, I was married in California. So, the state of California does not govern my marriage, my state of mind governs my marriage. And it's a matter of what state do I want to be in. And I, the, the most destructive thing I've ever heard is like, oh, I've been married to Bob for 40 years and he hasn't changed. And I'm like, I'm so sad for you. Uh, because growth is happiness. That, that's the reality. Growth is happiness. And it's about gro- choosing to grow together. How, how many of I mean, you're a pastor, you've heard it. Well, we just grew apart. Well, choose to grow together, you know, instead of growing apart, grow together. And so choosing a, you know, again, I am a huge fan of amazing, fantastic sex. And in this country, I don't know what it is, Scott, but married men are for whatever reason, never talk about having great sex with their wives. They always talk about having great sex with a stripper or having great sex with their secretary or whatever. Um, but they never talk about having great sex with their wives. And I'm like, it's, it's like baby pigeons. You know, you, you never hear a married man talk about great sex with a wife, like a baby pigeon, right? You know, baby pigeons exist, but you've never seen one. So uh,
0: I'm kind of taking fa- the baby. That's, that's fascinating. I, it? I'm trying to think. Think, think about that. Have you ever think- seen
1: a baby pigeon? Probably not.
0: I don't think I have.
1: But they have to exist, right? So i have kind of coming out being the baby pigeon and saying, my bride and I have incredible sex. And part of that is because we have a honeymoon every year. And the other part of it is our state of mind of saying, how do we intentionally grow together?
0: You know what you should do? You should start a movement, the Baby Pigeon Club. And couples <laughs> have a his and her baby pigeon shirt. And you're walking around and you're like, hey, they're having great sex, baby pigeons, baby.
1: <laughs> yes yes oh i'm right i didn't now. even
0: i didn't even have to be in the shower for that the
1: baby pigeon club i love it i love it and no it's so interesting right because you see all these shows these tv shows right like masters of sex and sex in the city and no one's married right <laughs> it's like dude you guys trust me i'm you know all these if you're single and you're having you're having sex you're like on level one you know my bride and i were on level 23 so how long do you want to play level one for? Uh, and, and move up. Because the intimacy factor is just sky. I mean, it gets better every year, Scott. It's tremendous. But it's about the state of mind. And in order to get in that state, go back to Tony Robbins, classic, you know, you change your state. So it forces us, right? I'm either on a post-honeymoon bliss half the year, or the other half a year, I'm super excited because we're creating a dream come true wedding. So I'm in one of those two states. So it's much easier to grow together when you're in that state instead of the state of nitpicking all the things that you don't like about your wife. So it, it's really just about putting yourself in the right state of mind and how you do that for us is planning a, a marriage every year. And sometimes we double down, you know, we're like, hey, let's go 2 let's have two weddings this year. So that that's how we do it.
0: Yeah, One of the, criti- you mentioned Joel Osteen several times and one of the criticisms a lot of people have of Joel Osteen. A lot of the theologians, ministers. I, I, I don't hear it outside the church as much, but inside the church, you hear this is kind of, it sounds like um, kind of the kingdom without the cross. It sounds like it has a tough time making sense of suffering. Uh, and it, it's interesting in your book, you talk about loss a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even talk about how Katie perry's song roar you're like oh this is like one of the greatest pop songs of most you know popular pop songs of all time it came out of her wrestling through things in therapy mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't so is, is 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 there's a guy like frank lake this psychologist he says you know if we look at our humanity like a like a bucket like a container that should contain something good and you open it and it doesn't it's like it's like oh my god the cover is bare i got nothing he says you know we're not meant to be buckets or containers but channels and energy of the life of god himself so from that perspective, having the bottom get knocked out of humanity ruins it as a container, but makes it ideal as a channel for the life, for the divine life and energy to flow through you. So, in some ways, like it, how, how do you, as an entrepreneur and as, as a personal growth positive guy, kind of hold intention? I think I mean I think you try it, you do it in your book in several of the chapters. Like this whole like you save your life by losing it. You know that that Jesus's values are a bottom up kind of thing, where you know the losers are the winners. So how do you hold that stuff in tension? Hmm. I I
1: have to honestly say, Scott, I you know, so as a as a fellow PhD, I I have my PhD in philosophy. Now, mine is my favorite kind of PhD because it's a um, uh, one of the. Uh, gifted ones, so it was like, "Hey, we want to award you with this with this PhD because the classic entrepreneur, right? The A students teach, the B and C students work for the D students, and the F students commemorate the buildings, right? That's <laughs> that's that's typically how it works. So I have an honorary PhD, so. I would need a actual PhD to really understand that question so for the non theologians that are listening can you put the cookies on the lower shelf for me on that question because I would love to answer it but I'm still turning Yeah 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 right. yeah
0: yeah I think that like like basically it, it, if you read the New Testament a lot of it is is that, that the the message is that, hey um the losers are the winners that great that, that grace only comes when, when you've died it, it's that that, that the message of jesus isn't just uh, rejuvenation it's death and resurrection so how do you as someone who who convinces people how to or helps people become successes and think big how how do you and yet you're you're very forthright about christian faith and how important that is how do you hold that intention with this it seems like it, it, the losers are the winners in, in a lot of Jesus' stories. So, so how do you kind of uh, make space for failure, for losing, and for kind of being the least, the last, and the lost, and still be someone that is actually trying to help people win and succeed and grow? Mm. Okay.
1: So I'll go a couple of different directions. So number one, for me, it, it's only a failure if you don't learn something. So, I mean, for me personally, I had to, you know, take, be like Moses and take a few laps around the mountain over and 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 over again to kind of learn the same lessons. So, I realized, hey, it's only a failure if you don't learn something. So, going back to a better question, right? When you have this perceived failure, the question to ask is, what can I learn from this? So, oh, you know what? I can learn to classic Ronald Reagan. I know you've dropped some politics in some of your past podcasts. The greatest thing Ronald Reagan ever taught me was trust, but verify. That was, <laughs> that was a lesson that took me forever to learn. And it still sometimes bites me because I'm I'm too lazy to get it in writing. So, uh, you know, if someone wants to borrow money, you want to have agreement. It's like, great. Here's the agreement. One page, sign it, you know, clean and simple. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. You know, that saved me. Again, that that's a, a lesson I'm still learning. So again, so failure is about learning. What can I learn? It's not failure unless you've learned something. The other thing going about to death and resurrection and all of that, what I love is, again, the inventor of personal growth, the Apostle Paul, right? Saul to Paul. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that Paul was in chronic pain. You know, there's a lot of people that are going through that these days and they're trying to figure out how do I mitigate that. And it's like, well, if you really want to understand chronic pain, talk to Paul. I mean, that was his life. But Paul mentioned something very profound. He said, I die daily. And it's about dying daily to self, because if, you know, all of the 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 dreams and the goals and success, right, you know, will, what exactly is success, right? You know, a lot of people perceive, you know, this personal growth success as, you know, sex, money, power, because that's, you know, what's the easiestly marketed, right? You know, and if you look at, all of the you know the so called gurus and all that stuff. That's that's really what it boils down to. You know, hey, sex, money, power, bought you by now. Um, but I think true success really is about what the Apostle Paul talked about, which is dying to self. And so I go back to one of the uh, great paraphrase that I've learned um, is about saying, hey, how can I talking about uh, you know Jesus's model prayer, kind of re re paraphrase, but it's, it's saying, hey. How can I glorify, you know, glorify God's name throughout the world through me? You know, how can I do that? You know, and so for me it's about hey, when I'm I'm teaching and I'm speaking and I'm teaching people about forgiveness, teaching people about breaking free, teaching people about, you know, true love and talking about dreams, you know, it's about living your dreams and serving and believing in others and helping them live their dreams. And so it's really about this thing of dying to self. And that's where it really comes in. Because when you're serving others, when you're living your dream and serving others, that's the magic. And so, it's, hey, how can I be serving serving others and living my dreams at the same time? That's when the magic happens. So, that that's really from the faith-based personal growth standpoint of this, hey, how do I balance this? You know, the first will be last and all this. It's, it's a, Again, it's about dying daily to yourself, and I think that's when the the magic really comes in. And, you know, the the quote that I've got is, you know, reiterating it is, life is about serving others and living your dreams. And true greatness is when you do both at the same time. So that's what I spend my life doing is saying, okay, how can I serve others and live my dreams at the same time? Because I think that's, to me, is when you're most Christ-like.
0: Yeah. And you actually say in the middle of the book, you have a chapter that I thought was, it's very short, it's profound. You, it's what do you want to do for the world? And you're like that's a mm-hmm. great question. Start so mm-hmm. you ask yourself what do I want to do for the world? Which is yeah, I mean I, I found that moving and insightful. So I I think like this is not a partisan judgment, right? But I think Donald Trump, if anybody is fair, whether is 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 pretty unsuccessful right now as president. Like, he's I've never seen somebody who came in with both houses of Congress, got to pick a Supreme Court justice, his approvals from the thirty, he can't get anything done. Right? He's just stuck. Like. If you were if he came to you and said, Evan Money, my man, you're huge. I'm huge. You're fantastic, <laughs> tremendously fantastic. And he asked you, no, I can't imagine him asking anybody for advice. But if in a moment his character changed, I <laughs> asked you for some advice, how how would you coach him to get unstuck?
1: All right. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about Trump. So Trump actually built a golf course right near our house and being the it,
0: it, savvy- it's is it a fantastic, <laughs> <laughs> tremendous well, golf course? Well,
1: here's here's what's funny. So, he he was savvy enough. Uh, another company built it, and where we live, kind of on the cliffs here in Los Angeles, they're kind of unstable. So when the the 18th hole kind of fell into the water ish, so he scooped it up at this bargain deal, and then built it up and branded it with the Trump name, and it was the Trump, you know, his first like West Coast thing, right? So we actually did a seminar at this. At, at this golf course, and it was called the Live Your Dream Seminar. And I brought in all the titans of Los Angeles, of faith-based people that were living out their walk in L.A. You know, I brought in the guy that bought Passion of the Christ for Fox. You know, for Fox, I brought in uh, one of the guys, amazing guys named Darren Horton. He was one of the original analysts on NFL Network. And we brought in um, just all these incredible, incredible, we brought Nancy Stafford. Uh, some people remember her, uh, you know, amazing actress. And then we did a lot of uh, faith-based women's conferences, brought in big names, all these these Christian movers and shakers that were, were living out their walk in Hollywood without compromising. Right. And so I had all these faith-based people later that didn't come. And I'm like, hey, how come you didn't come to this event? I mean, the event was a huge success. It was amazing. We had a, amazing people working with us. And they're like, oh, I didn't come because it was at Trump's. <laughs> it's like, what? So there's the, the Trump hate way back then. But as far as advice to give Donald and all of this stuff, um, you know, he's, he's very similar to you, Scott, in a way that... We're both pa- so fantastic. <laughs> yes. Well, so so here's, here's what he's got. He's got... This is what I say all the time. Pastors... Policemen and the president of the United States have the worst jobs in the world. And here's why I say this nobody calls their pastor to tell them about the great day they're having. It's always a crisis. Oh, my wife's leaving me. Oh, this person died. Oh, this is happening. Oh, it's always bad news. Policemen, same thing. Anytime the radio goes off, it's not, oh, hey, so and so wants to thank you for protecting the city. No, someone's shot. Someone's dying. You know, stuff's hitting the fan. It's going down. And so every call is bad news. And as a pastor, maybe 1% is good news, right? Hey, will you marry us? Oh, yeah. And then half of those, now you got to divorce them, right? So you guys are in a really tough spot. So as far as the president goes, I I think for me, number one, it's grace because everyone goes, well, you know, that's the one area, Scott, that I look at and I don't say, gosh, how hard could that be? (laughs) I look at that and go, who in their right mind would sign up for that? Because it is the hardest. Position ever, and I, I, my thoughts. I, I haven't hung out with Donald a lot, but my thoughts are that the position is going to humble him enough to where he's going to end up doing the right thing and end up being a great president because he he built this brand, you know, ego, bravado, the whole thing, um, and he came in and and made it happen, and now it's like, wow. I got to go from, hey, you know, I don't want to screw up the Trump legacy. I got to do a good job here. So I got to start serving others. I got to start doing this. I got to start doing that. So I, I think the humbling process is what's going on right now. And I think he's going to kind of turn that corner and say, hey, how can I start serving others? And that's going to be the best way to preserve my legacy instead of saying, I don't want to be known as the worst president ever. So I think that's going to work in our favor. Um but the other uh on a fun note i think i would coach him on the hair side and i would just tell him you know forget the comb over just shave it and roll like telly savalas and be the tough guy and you know go with that bald head and watch what happens so those would be the two things i'd give He'd be like the kingpin yes <laughs> see now you go going comic book i love it scott
0: yeah it's interesting i just heard today i forget i, was, I think it was on the 538 or no is it was msnbc it was on the news or something but they're saying that like he and obama had like flip problems they said obama at one point they had to take away his ipad because valerie jarrett would f- feed him these negative stories and all obama wanted to read was negative stories mm. about it like he's a critical thinker it was always looking for the he was like trump kind of wants like the fox and friends like puff piece it, it mm-hmm. like but it's interesting because some people thought it was a problem enough for Obama that it actually that he's too, it he was too fixated on the bad news that, you know, so it's just, it's just interesting that, well, I hope you get the coach Donald Trump someday, just because I'd like to see him as kingpin. <laughs> I think, I think that would be completely amazing.
1: No, I, I, the the bottom line with Trump is, you know, we're all in the same boat. So I think the more we can encourage him, the more we can pray for him. I I think he's going to turn it around. Uh, just from a pure thing of saying hey I, I, I cannot be the worst president ever I'm gonna make a change I'm gonna get some things done but you know I think wanting wanting donald Trump to fail is kind of like wanting your your airline pilot to crash it's like um that's not gonna work out too well so <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> it's like okay we're kind of in this together so let's uh you know let's at least help him land the plate so
0: do you think politicians in general i mean it seems that like it's it strikes me that there doesn't seem to be a lot of imagination in Washington D.C. Mm. Like, like it, it, it just doesn't, and, and that's interesting, right? I mean, because there are a lot of sectors in our society where there's a lot of imagination. There's a lot. Of, there seems to be a lot of imagination in science and in scientific innovation. Yes, there seems to be a lot in Silicon Valley. Yes, in the entrepreneurial world, there's. You, you see places it, where it's amazing. I, I, you know, and I don't know if it's who it draws or the culture, but. It seems like, 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 it doesn't seem like it should be that impossible to fix the healthcare system or at least improve it, you know, like, and, and and yet it seems like nobody can come up with ideas that could bring, you know, the country together. I mean, it just, I mean, maybe, do we need more imaginative people connecting with politicians?
1: You, you know what we really need, Scott? We really need Americans to start taking responsibility. So... This, this is what it really comes down to. And I learned this from my original mentor, Jim Rohn. So how, have you ever been guilty of saying this to your family and all this stuff? That's too expensive. Have you ever said that before? You ever caught yourself saying that? Sure. Okay. You say, well, that's too expensive. But that's not true. The, the reality is you just can't afford it. Now, now stay with me here. By, by saying that that's too expensive, that makes that the problem. Well, the problem with that car is just too expensive. No, the problem is with me, because I haven't gotten creative enough to create a way to make enough money to purchase that product, if that's what I really want. So in America, we've gotten so good at blaming everybody else and putting the responsibility on everybody else. The whole concept of America was to say, let's create a government that will give people the freedom to figure it out themselves. So by putting the blame on the government, well, the government needs to do this. Uh, here's another one we may have caught ourselves saying, Scott. Taxes are too what? Too
0: low. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Everybody says, oh, man, yeah, taxes no, are too, too high. high. Yeah, yeah. Taxes are too high. Well, at one point in the 20th century, the top tax rate was 90%. Yeah,
0: under Eisenhower. Yeah. yeah.
1: If you made over hundred grand, your tax rate was 90%. So I think the tax rate for entrepreneurs, I think my top tax rate was like 50%. Something like that, 45%, 50%. Hey, it's better than 90%. You know, yeah. so if it's it's gone down from ninety, how can it be too high? So the the real problem is Americans not taking responsibility. So instead of saying when are they going to fix this out here, it's hey when am I going to fix fix this? You know, it's about it's not about them that we we're we're not a socialist country. It's up to us. You know, Elon Musk is perfect. Hey, it's not up to NASA to get us to Mars. I'm going to do it. OK, it's not up to us to say, when's the government going to fix this healthcare. It's up to us to say, hey, I need to figure out how to put better quality foods in my body. So I'm not getting sick in the first place. And I need to figure out, gee, why are we poisoning our own food supply? And gee, why don't I figure out a way to where, hey, I don't have to go in, you know, to have this government take, you know, if if you want to have government health care, move to Cuba. OK, tell me how that's working out. So it's about us as Americans taking responsibility. Classic, right? Wake up, America, you know, and take America back. I don't I don't think the government should be doing all this stuff. I think one of the classic you look at our two iconic presidents, right? I mean, I, I love Ronald Reagan, even though his greatest approval rating was, I think, 53 percent. Now it's like 99. Oh, Reagan was the greatest. Well, when he was in office, he sure wasn't. Uh, Or you go back to Kennedy, right? Kennedy figured it out. It wasn't, hey, I'm going to solve everybody's problem. It was, I'm going to paint this picture and point the direction. Hey, we're going to get to the moon somehow. (laughs) You know, it wasn't, I'm going to take us to the moon. It's, we're going to get to the moon somehow. So I think the real president's job is to kind of point the way and say, hey, America, let's get back to figuring out stuff on our own and saying, hey, how can I be a healthier American? How can I be part of the solution? How can I figure it out instead of making the government the problem? So I'm a big fan of us taking responsibility and saying, my goodness gracious, we've got this gr- the greatest country ever, and it was founded on godly principles. And if you don't believe that, just look at your money. What does it say on it? And saying, hey, you know, when you have a free enterprise system that is based on godly principles, you get generosity. When you take a free enterprise system and you take God out of it, you get greed. And so I think we need to go back to, hey, let's take some responsibility. Let's focus on the godly principles and saying it's not the government's role to do this. It's our role as a private society to say, hey, how can we create the, the solution ourselves instead of pointing the finger at somebody else? But that's my soapbox for you.
0: <laughs> if you were going to say, if you're going to tell people who want to connect with you, if you're, you're like pitching yourself, right? As as a personal growth guy, who is like the most prominent client you've helped or what's the best success story that you could tell somebody that would make them say, hmm, maybe I'm going to go to this guy's event or maybe I want to read this guy's stuff or maybe I want to connect with him online and get in his sphere of influence, his circle of of life, so to speak, or whatever, what may have you. Like, how would you pitch yourself?
1: That is a spectacular question because it dovetails on what I just said. So the greatest client I've ever had, let's go back to the hair club for men <laughs> segue. The greatest client is myself, Scott. That, that's how you know when it's real. Because there's so many people out there that are talking the talk and, and pitching the stuff. But it's like Hollywood. It's a facade you see their lives on stage and then you see their real life and you're like, dude, that's not success. It's like, do I really want to be married five times? Do I really want all this baby mama drama? Do I, you know, really want to be 40 pounds overweight on the cover of a health book, diet book that I'm selling? Something's odd there. So, the greatest client I've ever had is myself. And getting out of the the lost seven year old boy without a father figure and going through all the sexual dysfunction and these dark places and saying, Man, how do I get out of this? And how do I create a, a life of my dreams? And how do I, you know, get out of this stressed entrepreneur that's trying to find balance and realize there is no balance and there's only harmony? And how do I leverage the power of forgiveness where I can forgive my dad so I can stop being the president of the Father-Son Issues Club? And so that's why I continue to be an entrepreneur because I don't believe, in my mind, I can help an entrepreneur if I've never owned a business. Or I can talk about, yeah, you really want to make your business successful because back in our day, we used to send out a fax. You know, it's like if if you're not in business today, you can't help a business owner today because the world has shifted and it's going so fast. So for me, it's about saying, hey, I was able to use these tools and principles to turn my life around and I can help you do it as an entrepreneur, as someone who is seeking or currently loves Jesus and wants to explore that, and somebody who wants to say, "Hey, I want to make the world a better place because I'm here." And so, again, for me, it's about saying, "Hey, I went through all this stuff so I can help you." You know, the, the classic Scott, right? The people that have the the greatest, uh, you know, it's funny. All the marriage uh, gurus, majority of them are divorced. You know, all the people that have the best-selling parenting books, and I, I don't know if, if you have kids yet or not, Scott, but all the people with the best-selling kids' books don't have kids. You know, it's like, eh. So, for me, it's like, hey, this is what I've gone through, and I've used it for my benefit, and I want to pass it on to you. So, there you go.
0: Money talks, negativity walks. And I, I will. And That's you, it. Negativity is walking out of my little home <laughs> studio right now. I mean, it's been great talking with you, and... People can find you online, right? They can just go to your website, EverMoney
1: Evan yes. evermoney.com Evan EvanMoney.com. That's a fun one. And I'll use my Malcolm Gladwell. He taught me this pitch, you know, money talks, negativity walks on Amazon, please buy in triplicate. That's, that was Malcolm's <laughs> plea. <laughs> I heard him say that. I was like, dude, that's brilliant. Uh, so, but yeah, I would, you know, again, your listener base is so profound and i love actually you know I, I love connecting with pastors cuz i get them and i understand them and I, I know the the quandary that they're in so um you know i just again love serving people and if whatever i something that i've said or the book whatever resonates again i would love to connect
0: thanks for coming on the podcast and i will have you back on
1: ooh is that state shark is that a real deal
0: no that's for real I nice will. you're fun talking with Woohoo. You're, you're you're engaging interesting
1: yay well, it's cuz you ask great questions
0: man I try. and I, None of them came from anything I wrote down in the shower. But <laughs> Thanks so much for being with me, man. Hey, Scott. A pleasure,
1: my friend. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, take giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find All the information there. And and please do check out Evan's book, Money Talks, Frustration, Walks. And you can watch his documentary Words of Art free, streaming on Amazon Prime Video, if you're a Prime member. So please check that out too. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fair and